1: How can Americans fight for change without our elected officials getting in the way? I'm Jamil Smith, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. During his run for Massachusetts governor back in 2002, Robert Reich put out a book called I'll Be Short. The title recognized the elephant in the political room, so to speak. Reich, the former Secretary of Labor during the Clinton administration, was running for major office in a country that likes tall politicians, and he stands at just under five feet due to a rare genetic disorder that stunted his growth. But nearly 20 years later, his stature aside, Reich's message of equality and societal cooperation is resonating more loudly than perhaps ever before. Reich is the author of numerous other books, most recently the national bestseller The System, Who Rigged It? How We Fix It? But if you're on social media, you probably see him all over your timeline right now. The 75-year-old Cal Berkeley professor's truculent tweets and viral videos from his company, Inequality Media, are at once blunt and inviting, humorous and uncompromising. He targets American oligarchs and the politicians who serve them. And he uses his expertise as an educator and veteran of three presidential administrations to say just how much trouble we're in. When he and I spoke, It was the day before the Democratic congressional primary in my hometown district, Ohio's 11th. Reich had endorsed Nina Turner, the former Ohio state senator and fellow Bernie Sanders supporter. Turner lost her bid the next day, just as Reich lost at Massachusetts nomination. But if Bob Reich is an example, you don't necessarily need to win your election to advance the political conversation in this country. Robert Reich, welcome to the show. Well, Jamil, I'm delighted. How are you? I'm good, Bob. I'm good. I'm in Washington, D.C. today at our offices. Right now, the U.S. Congress is busy debating and amending this massive spending bill, right? Yeah. But earlier this month, we saw their failure to extend the federal eviction moratorium, right? They saw it coming. They just didn't act. Now, Biden and the CDC did finally extend that moratorium, although they can only do so in a way that helps about 90% of the families across the country who need it. In your opinion, Bob, How could Congress have let this happen?
2: Well, that's a very good and awful question at the same time. I mean, it's, I don't know what happened to the Democrats. I mean, the Biden administration clearly knew this was coming. They knew when the moratorium was ending Democrats in Congress, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. They knew when this was coming. Uh, they obviously are communicating very closely with the Biden administration in terms of what needs to happen. So why did this happen? I don't know. My guess, I'm going to give you my cynical. Reading first, which is usually what actually is has been the case is you've got landlords across the country uh, they have considerable political power in various states and cities. they don't want any more of this moratorium, and they have been putting pressure on the administration and on their representatives and on Democrats, and they say, no, we were willing to go up until now, but now that we've got the stimulus, we've got the $300, a kid coming into people's pockets, uh, there's no reason for this. And so let's just stop this because we can't afford it. And it's becoming worse and worse because the cumulative effect of this in terms of back rents that are owed are just becoming huge. And we're we're fearful we're never going to get this back. That's what I think
1: has happened. Amidst all of this worry about folks who are having trouble just really keeping a roof over their heads, we have a couple of rich guys going way over our heads and trying to go to space. Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos, what could they be doing with the money that they're using to essentially go to the edge of space?
2: Well, Jamil, I think the real issue here is one of a wealth tax or a much, much higher marginal income tax on the highest incomes. I mean, if we had a sane tax system, then we would not have this mortgage or tenant crisis uh, because we could pay the back rent. We could, in this pandemic period, at the very least, there would be a surtax on billionaires to fund poor people who can't afford their rent. I mean in any sane system that would be happening right now. And the fact that we don't have a surcharge on the Bezoses and the Musks and the the other billionaires. I mean the 660 billionaires in the United States. During the course of the pandemic, they increased their billions by 1.8 trillion dollars. I mean, mm. you can't you can't even get your arms around uh, that kind of figure. But let me assure you, 1.8 trillion dollars is way more than is necessary to keep everybody who is running in their house and home at least through the end of the year.
1: Instead, of course, we got the spectacle of seeing these guys launch themselves to like the very border of space do you feel like there's anything good that came out of that?
2: Look, I, 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 you can always make up a story that, Oh, well, isn't this grace because we are moving closer to space travel for ordinary people. Well, I think that's bullshit, frankly. Mm -hmm. I mean, ordinary people are not going to go into space in my lifetime, maybe your lifetime. And why would we want to go into space? Well, why don't we use all that energy, that intelligence, that money to make the earth habitable? You know, it's kind of a, a symbol of something that runs very deep in capitalism if you want to put it that way and that is the very wealthiest secede from everybody else. I mean today, Jamil, to be rich in America is not to have to come anywhere close to anybody who is not rich. I mean you have your own private planes, your own private areas of the country in terms of your own security guards, your own limousines, your own drivers, your everything is privatized and you only see other rich people carry that to the logical extreme the logical extreme symbolically metaphorically
1: is you have a space colony of only rich people right but in this respect while they're still here on earth how are rich people dangerous
2: well they're not so much dangerous they're just a they're not paying their fair share of the dues, if you want to call them dues, for being a part of a society and a part of a world. Mm -hmm. And I think they're also kind of uh, thumbing their nose at society. They're saying, we can live in our own world. We can go into outer space. We can do anything we want. And we have the ultimate freedom. And by the way, you guys don't and the lower your income, the less freedom you have. And freedom is just for the rich.
1: And that's something I think you addressed very well in one of your earlier chapters in the system, how the rich get to enjoy socialism, ironically, and the rest of us have to deal with the harsh consequences and bad things about capitalism. I, I think this is a very Fundamental important
2: point about American capitalism that distinguishes American capitalism from almost every form of capitalism, including social democratic systems in the Nordic countries. Here, we have the harshest and most brutal form of capitalism. That is, we have almost no safety nets. Our safety nets that we did have dating from the 1930s and 1960s are unraveling. If you are poor, if you've had bad luck, if you've had bad illness, I mean, you're in terrible trouble. If you can be fired at will, you have no freedom. I mean, you're really constrained in ways that almost nobody else in the world in advanced countries is constrained. We have no sick leave. We have no mandatory paid paternity or maternity leave. We have no child care. I mean, we have nothing for most people except Social Security, and Medicare, uh, which both date from the 30s and the 1960s. But if you are rich If you have rich parents, if you've had the best luck, if you've you've gone to good schools and, and you have the right connections, you are in a different socialist world in the sense that you're too rich to fail. The government will bail you out if you're a banker and you have completely screwed up. You know, as the bankers were bailed out in 2008, you get uh, tax breaks. Uh, The Fed, the Federal Reserve Board will give you extra benefits and will take the debt off your hands if you've been so foolish as to aggregate a lot of debt during the years leading up to the pandemic. Again and again, you as a rich person, you're not only, quote unquote, entitled to have the world at your fingertips, but the government is making life terrific for you. And the reason for that, Jamil, is because you've got political power. You've got enough political power to get the bank bailouts, to get the Fed to bail out your
1: corporations. You've got enough political power to get everything you want. And that's the thing I don't understand about going back to the Democrats. You have the power. You have the presidency back. You've rescued it from these people, these incompetent, malevolent people who are in charge and you have a majority in Congress. Why aren't you using it the way that we really need to be using it? Well, first of all,
2: I want to say in just fairness to the Democrats who are there in the Capitol right now, I'm impressed by the 1.9 stimulus bill that got through I'm impressed that it looks like an almost trillion dollar infrastructure bill is going through. I would, if I had to bet, I would say that 3.5 trillion dollar kind of soft stimulus bill uh, that's likely to go through. I think the Democrats actually are accomplishing more than the Obama Democrats or the Clinton Democrats in the first 2 years mm-hmm. uh, where the Democrats had both houses of Congress for both of those administrations. But I You know, as a progressive, I want more. I mean, as a progressive... I want to see the minimum wage raised. As a progressive, I want people who are in poverty, who are being kicked out of their homes or their rental units, they should not be. I don't want them to be subjected to that. I don't want people at the border being put back into prisons or jails or cages. As a progressive, as a liberal, I want much more than the Democrats seem to be able to deliver. And I also want the For the People Act. I want voting reform. I don't want... uh, these Republican states to be able to take away the votes, particularly the
1: votes of black and Latino people. And I'm angry. Yeah. And same. And I should probably couch my earlier comments by saying that, listen, I understand that the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress have actually gotten a substantial amount done and they've, they've certainly, you know, turned this whole pandemic in a different direction. But that being said, it's not wrong to ask for more considering the power that they have Especially with regards to voting rights, as you bring up, you see them ensconced in this language of hope and optimism, which is all well and good. But you know, voting turnout, as they claim is not going to solve the problem of voter suppression. It's not no. going to end it. And we, we can't just sit here thinking that like, okay, we can just like stop the bleeding of the Trump administration and think that like, we're doing okay or that we've done enough. Yeah,
2: well, I I think there's a real danger. We're not back to Jim Crow. We're not back to pre-1965 Voting Rights Act, but we're pretty close. And we're pretty close because there is something that we haven't yet talked about, but it is the elephant in the room. And that is Trump and the Trump administration. What Donald Trump did, the racism he exploited and provoked, and the fact he's still with us—he's still justifying all of these Republican state legislators trying to constrict the vote. The fact that Trump can still do that is frightening. It frightens me. And the fact that we've got a few Democrats like uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, Democratic senators who are so concerned about being considered centrist that they won't commit themselves to the For the People Act, to preempting all of these uh, negative turns on the, in the state legislatures on voting rights, uh, uh, that to me is incomprehensible. There is no centrism anymore. Uh, You know, if you have fascism on one side, you can't be a centrist. Centrism meant something when you had a legitimate Republican Party, a small government, and actually had some principles behind it. But centrism, when you're talking about compromising with Trumpers, is not centrism. There's no justification for it at all.
1: Let's take a quick break. But when we're back, bipartisanship is a buzzword in Congress today. And some people believe that its promise helped get Joe Biden elected president. But when one party becomes, for all intents and purposes, an extremist group, is bipartisanship even a worthy goal? That's after the break.
3: Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Shopify. Shopify.com slash box.
0: In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple they plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.
1: There's this kind of partisan theater, I feel like, that sometimes I think takes us away from what we need to be focusing upon. And you've been in Washington as the Labor Secretary. Is working with Republicans even worth it? Uh, I would say now, probably not.
2: Uh, I mean, I was... Very fortunate i I was in Washington at a time when it was possible for Democrats and Republicans to come together. There was a generation of people who had gone through some traumas you know uh, the the Vietnam War, voting rights uh, civil rights uh, they had they had worked been forced to work together. They had been through the Nixon administration they had many of them had actually been involved in the Nixon impeachment, mm-hmm. so you had Republicans who really rose above partisanship and you had uh, People who I was very close to, like Teddy Kennedy, who habitually, necessarily made friends among the Republicans, Republican senators. Uh, They had got a lot done together. And so until Newt Gingrich really came on the scene, there was a kind of a norm both in the Senate and really in the House as well, about how Republican Democrats uh, need to work together. Uh, not that they all loved each other. It was not all kumbaya, but they needed each other. They understood they needed each other. They understood they were there for the common good, for the country as a whole. That is now not the case. The Trump Republicans are a different breed. And I mentioned Newt Gingrich advisedly, Jamil, because I think it starts with Newt Gingrich, Right. Uh, this kind of... Uh, Scorched earth politics. And the new King, which basically comes in with his band of Republicans who are not just radical and extremist, but they're willing to burn down the house to get what they want. They're willing to, to destroy the institutions of our democracy to achieve their own limited political and power goals. And that was something that I did not expect. I never thought would happen. And of course, Donald Trump is the
1: kind of larger version of all of that. Well, at the same time, though, I mean, we have folks not seeming to adapt in terms of their response to it. I mean, it's just not new. I mean, this is you take it back to Newt Gingrich. I'm thinking also of Lee Atwater. You know, who really outlined exactly how they would exploit our racial divisions to profit for Republicans. I mean, they did
2: it for years. Yeah, they did it for years. I mean, uh, you know, the dog whistle politics was something that Atwater had perfected. Roger Stone was was part of it. They were doing it for Richard Nixon, George H.W. Bush, you know, the Willie Horton ads against Michael Dukakis. I mean, they all knew that they could exploit racism to gain power. But the difference was that before Newt Gingrich, the Republican Party, at least as a party, had some integrity. Mm. It stood for some principles. And I would venture to say most Republicans in the Republican Party believed in those principles. And they used those principles to gain power, but they were not really fundamentally white supremacists. They were not really, most of them, uh, racists. I think something has fundamentally changed. I saw the change. You know, I I was secretary of labor before Newt Gingrich uh, and his contract with America. And I'd go up and testify before committees on the Hill, Republicans and Democrats. And there would be an exchange of views. There would be some respect. And then months later, I went back to the same committees, but they weren't exactly the same committees because now there were new Republicans. Many of them have been replaced by the Gingrich Republicans. And, instead of civility, uh, there was a kind of an anger. They were, in a way, channeling the anger of working-class white America that had not got a raise in 40 years. At that time, it was 25 years. But Republicans, and I think you pointed out, Lee Atwater had already seen the possibilities of using that white working-class frustration, and channeling it toward racism and anger, fear, and exploiting it for power. That's exactly what Gingrich did. And of course, Trump did it on a much larger scale. And that's what the Republican Party is right now. I mean, what is the Republican Party? It essentially stands for two things, for the two basic parts of its constituency, uh, low taxes for the wealthy and white supremacy. Uh, for the white working class that is angry about not getting ahead and looking for scapegoats.
1: Right. And you see people seeking to blame pretty much any other that they can find. And Republicans exploit that, of course, as you say, to maintain power purely because they can't win national elections anymore. And they can't do it, certainly without huge amounts of voter suppression. And they know that. Oh,
2: yeah. That's the key to their survival yeah and i think mitch mcconnell actually is the cleverest of them in a kind of diabolical way because he's he's playing a particularly long game he sees that the demographics of the country are shifting in a very important way you know most of the new voters coming up are people of color many of them are young progressives many of them don't even understand uh, what the Republicans have been trying to do. And so what McConnell has done is he stacked the Supreme Court and the federal court system with conservative judges and justices, and he has looked for structural changes that will permit Republican legislators to constrict the vote and make it harder and harder for people of color and for people who are likely to vote for Democrats to vote. And this has been going on for years, but he has perfected the art. I mean, look what he did in terms of the census, or certainly what they tried to do. He didn't pull it off entirely, right. uh, but that census was very important in terms of who controls these legislators and how these districts are shaped to keep out or basically box in
1: people of color. Right. And I mean, to some degree, I would push back in one respect because I think they actually did accomplish what they wanted to with the census, which is that they got people scared about using their full capabilities as a citizen. It's not simply targeting the undocumented folks who do you know, count in the census, but also the people who are here legally, but they aren't in, I guess, Republican views, fortunate enough to be white. Yeah, They want to make sure that those people feel like they aren't fully part of the American franchise. And that, to me, yep. is, is is inherent to the whole philosophy. Because if you make people feel like they're not fully Americans, it's easier to dehumanize them and more just easily disregarded through public policy in pretty much every phase of society. Absolutely, Jamil. I think the,
2: the oligarchy in America, that, that that is the very rich people who have enormous wealth and power, they want black people and white people, working class blacks and whites, to dislike each other, distrust each other, even hate each other, because that way they can divide and conquer. That way they prevent the working class and much of the middle class from looking up and seeing where all the wealth is gone. You know, as long as they see their enemy as, and this is particularly true of the white working class, as long as they see a scapegoat uh, black people and brown people and say, oh, well, they are the re, and immigrants, and they are the reason we have not, uh, succeeded. Uh, then they're never going to f- create a coalition, a voting coalition, a political coalition powerful enough to challenge the oligarchy. That is the central goal, I think, of the Cokes, the Waltons, and the, the people who control
1: more and more of the levers of power in this country. Right. And of course, that's who we're speaking about when we talk about oligarchy. Money allows folks to assume those kind of de facto royalty positions within our society. And we honor that by showering fame upon them and and all the trappings of fame the we've always had an oligarchy we've always had the rich i mean
2: we've always had a lot of inequality in this country uh but the last time we had the degree of inequality we are now seeing was in the 1880s 1890s the so-called gilded age where a handful of extraordinarily wealthy people uh, suppressed votes they suppressed unions they did not want any competition for their fortunes and of course it ended badly ultimately Uh, The Gilded Age, you could say, ended with the great crash of 1929 uh, because there is no way that an economy can function if more and more and more of its benefits are going to the very top because the economy requires people to spend. We're getting down to economics 101 here. If they don't have enough money uh, Mm -hmm. to turn around and buy all the things that they produce, the economy at some time is just going to collapse of its own weight. You just can't. They can't go into debt deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's what happened to the first Gilded Age. And we're seeing shades of that now in the second Gilded Age. The robber barons of the second Gilded Age are using their political clout to get more and more of the benefits, uh, change the market, change the rules, change the laws, so they do better and better. While the bottom 60, 70% of Americans are really on uh, on a downward escalator, their wages have stagnated, adjusted for inflation, the net result, you just in, in economic terms, you, you've got a very fragile economy. Uh, we saw it in 2008, uh, the first signs of fragility, because you saw that, that financial explosion, the debt bubble burst, the housing bubble burst. Uh, but we see now huge levels of debt once again. So the bottom 40% of Americans are deep into debt. We have an economy that is not capable of purchasing all the things that at full employment or near full employment, it is capable of producing. Uh, so what does the Fed do? What does Congress do? Congress can't keep on spending, obviously. Mm-hmm. The Fed can't keep on keeping interest rates near zero. So what's the bottom line? It is in the interest, it's actually in the economic interest of the oligarchy, of the wealthy, to prevent and to cure the degree of inequality we now have. They would do better with an economy in which everybody was doing better right. than they're doing right now in a very fragile economy in which they are, you know, they are raking it in. But the next depression is just around the corner.
0: Damn.
2: You see, what we I don't think we've faced is that there is a connection between racism and the maldistribution of income and wealth in this country, the, the oligarchy we've been talking about, we haven't faced the fact that voting rights are not simply a matter of making sure that everybody can get to the polls and has a chance to vote and has a chance to vote by mail and all of the things that we're going through by at the state level. Voting rights is also a matter of making sure that our government system is not overwhelmed by big money. Mm-hmm. Big money and getting big money out of our politics should be, has to be considered part of uh, democracy reform, which is why the For the People Act is so important. It's not only about restoring voting rights and preempting state laws that are constricting them. It's also about creating incentives for small donors, making it harder for candidates to rely
1: on the big donors that now have just too much power. Right. What do you think the pandemic has done in terms of further showing us what the holes in the American boat are?
2: Yeah, well, the pandemic, uh, you know, in a way, just like Donald Trump, it exposed a lot of Things that are very unpleasant that people don't want to see and they don't want to think about it exposed a wild inequality. It in itself has made the rich even richer while huge numbers of Americans lost their jobs lost their incomes many people faced food shortages in the way that we haven't seen since the Great Depression. The pandemic also revealed the weakness of our public health system, the fact we don't really have a public health system. To have a for-profit private health care system during a pandemic is absurd. You know, so many Americans, I think, have come over to the view that our for-profit-based private health insurance system does not work for most americans. Uh, we've got to have a system based on medicare, a kind of medicare for all. and i would not be surprised, jamil, if uh, you know in the next 20 years we move toward medicare for all. we move mm. toward paid sick leave, paid family leave. these are things that the pandemic exposed that we have to have. things that will be financed have to be financed by something like a wealth tax.
1: Now, there's so many different things that I feel like would make this a better country and make it run more efficiently and more equitably. What do people need to do right now? We need to be taking to the streets for voting rights. And if not taking to the streets, what do you feel like might be the best way for us to get after these goals? Well, it's always nice to take to the streets, but I, I worry that taking to the streets
2: or demonstrating is sometimes a substitute for the hard work of political organizing. And it mustn't be. Mm. I tell my students that the best way to make change is to help people organize. Uh, for change. The best way to improve society is to either run for office yourself or to get other people to uh, support candidates that are good candidates in your communities, in your states, organize, organize, organize. That's, you know, what Stacey Abrams did in, in Georgia. That's what needs to be done all over the country. Again, I don't want to be understood as poo-pooing demonstrations. I mean, demonstrations may be a necessary part of getting a movement, a democracy movement, uh, a movement for overcoming inequality, but we really do need people who are on the ground, who are working the political system, who have a very long view. This is not going to happen in one year. It's not going to happen over one election cycle. I think it's a miracle that the Democrats actually are putatively in control of the Senate by one vote, Kamala Harris. I think it's a miracle that the Democrats uh, have the House, still have the House, but we can't rely on miracles. Right Now, l- let me just say one more thing. Yeah, It's important that people who care about the future of this country take and play the long game. I am very sympathetic with people who come to me and say, I'm burnt out. You know, I've just, I've just been banging my head against a wall trying to make change, trying to make social change that is progressive, and I can't do it anymore. Yes, of course, I understand that. I, I feel many times the same way. But often people who are burnt out have been doing it the wrong way. They've been taking too much responsibility on themselves personally. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've not been allocating uh, responsibility to others. They've not been sharing responsibility. They've not been building a movement. They've not been pacing themselves. They've not been thinking about the long term. You know, some of these things take an entire lifetime. Uh, So, yes, you can get burnt out, but that's usually a symptom of not
1: doing it the right way. One of the things I think about when you mention that, though, is how burnout we all got over the previous four years in this Trump administration. The constant onslaught of bad news, of vitriolic speech, and I think all of it culminating, frankly, in the siege on the Capitol. There is the temptation, I think, to say that as a way, almost as a defense mechanism, not to simply dismiss it, but to simply say, I can't handle any more of this guy. You know, I can't handle any more of what he is unleashed upon us i just don't have the capacity to do it
2: well it's easy to look at the trumpers and they're still out there and they're fulminating and trump is fulminating and it's still a huge threat to our democracy and be cynical and say nothing will ever change. It's easy to look at climate change. It's easy to look at at our democracy. It's easy to look at uh, racism and just say, uh, it's always been with us. It will always be with us. It's always going to get worse and worse and worse. We are doomed. And basically, tune out. Mm -hmm. Well, it's too easy to do that. I think the biggest danger, honestly, is not burnout. The biggest danger is cynicism. If many of us, and by us I mean progressives who care about this country, who want social change, who believe in the ideals of this country. If too many of us just say, no way, this is not going to happen, then it won't happen. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy of doom. And that's what the oligarchs and the white supremacists would really want more than anything else. They want us all to get cynical. They want us all Become defeatist. They want us all to feel that nothing is going to change. In fact, if anything, it's going to get worse, and therefore give up. Because if we give up, then we cede the entire ground to them. And we must not do that. It's important that we keep on fighting. We can get angry, that's good. Anger isn't bad. Anger is good. We can be outraged. That's not bad. Let's let's be outraged. But let's not be cynical
1: okay we're going to take one more short break but when we come back Robert Reich has been an outspoken voice on almost every platform imaginable sure he's written a ton of books but he's also on Twitter Instagram YouTube and now even TikTok I mean I'm not even on TikTok so after the break I'll ask him what's he hoping to accomplish with all this You're what I consider to be an early adopter of common sense, Bob. I feel like at one point you may have been more of a voice in the wilderness, and now you're using your platform to speak to people when, frankly, I think more people are attuned to these horrors, whether or not they're being cynical or exhausted or burnout or not. People are paying attention. How do you feel like you're now using your platforms to further the kind of change that we need?
2: well i mean i I consider myself an educator, Jamil I mean that's what I do that's what I believe in i think uh yep. I think people need to understand they need to understand history, they need to understand context, they need to be able to connect the dots economics, politics, philosophy, history, law. I guess my faith is that if they are able to do this, or to the extent that they are able to do this, they will be constructive citizens. Mm. They are what our democracy needs. You know, my little contribution now is to teach. I, I love my students. I love teaching, and to teach through social media. I write books as well, but I'll I tell you, quite frankly, I, I although I love writing and I love writing books, books are very difficult and inefficient way of reaching people these days because a lot of young people, I don't want to sound negative about young people because I don't feel it at all. I wouldn't be teaching if I felt negative. I think they're acutely sensitive to visual cues. They're acutely sensitive to musical cues. They are somewhat less sensitive to verbal uh, written cues. Right. You know, they can see things and hear things I can't see and hear. uh, But The context of media that they grew up in is not geared to nearly as much the written word as my generation was. What that means is I've kind of torqued my time and my energies toward visual uh, and social media. Uh, I did a couple of documentaries that are being shown in classrooms. I do videos and people seem to react well to them. They, They seem to find them helpful. I even started to do something on TikTok. Now, I don't understand TikTok. I I really don't. You and me both. (laughs) But I'm helped by some very young people, Generation Z, uh, who reassure me that I am in, in, again, a very marginal way reaching Generation Z. So that's great.
1: Honestly, I mean, you do things on Instagram, I think are just you know, frankly, hilarious. And you reach people, I think, a lot through humor. Does that come naturally? Or is that something that you felt like was a tool for you in the past? Well, humor is very important. A spoonful
2: of sugar really does help the medicine go down. One of my best friends in the world is a fellow named Alan Simpson, who was a senator from Wyoming. Oh, yeah. The reason we got to be friends is we bo- we both love each other's sense of humor. We would get together When I was uh, Secretary of Labor and he was leadership in the Senate, Republican leadership in the Senate, our staffs didn't want us to get together. They'd say, oh, no, don't go see him. You know, he's (laughs) the other side. So we'd have to sneak out. It was like an illicit affair. We'd have lunch and we'd tell jokes and we would just roar. He's very, very funny. And it's through humor that I can sometimes get through to conservative audiences uh, in ways that you can't get through, even with logic and or what I consider to be logic, facts and reason. So don't underestimate the power and importance of humor.
1: What about public service, you know, sort of helped you educate people? I mean, you could have been a professor from the very start and just done that. Why do you feel like being in a cabinet role helped you, you know, convey those kinds of messages? Well, I learned a lot. Uh, You know, I was in and out of Washington.
2: I was uh, a director of policy for the Federal Trade Commission. I argued cases before the Supreme Court representing the United States. I was a cabinet member. I know the inside. Now, I don't know the inside today. I know a lot of people who know the inside today. But I, I know what it's like to be a player in those inner circles. And that gives me a certain confidence uh in what I say and do. And I can also read a newspaper or I can hear the news and read between the lines, if you will. That is, I can I can sort of see what's what's actually happening uh, because I know the codes. And uh that is something that I use in my teaching. I want people to understand the system as a system. I want people to understand that there's no separate discipline called economics. And no separate discipline called political science or law or or history yes these are separate disciplines but they are all interrelated and they have some very important dynamic relationships that change over time and that are changing i want people to really know that the united states is unique we are an outlier in terms of developed nations. I mean, we are wildly unequal, for example, in the way we've been talking about. I mean, racism is sadly and tragically baked into our system. You know, the Republicans right now who who reject something that they're calling critical race theory, I mean, it's clear hmm. that the reason they're rejecting this is because they've had thousands of focus groups to find out what it is that white middle class working class people will find frightening. What words will find frightening? This that goes back to Lee Atwater. Uh, what words will they find frightening? Critical race theory. Right. That's a good thing to hold up because nobody knows what it is. If you say to white people, "Well, isn't it important for our children to know the history?" Of what has happened in this country to black people and to indigenous people and to Asian people. Isn't that an important piece of history? Uh, Most intelligent people, or even halfway intelligent people, would say, Of course, uh, we need to know that because if we don't know that, we're missing out on a big piece of where we were.
1: Right. And it brings me to that chapter you had in uh, another book of yours, The Common Good, in which you talked about civic education for all. Can you tell me a little bit about what? That could look like in America?
2: Well, first of all, I, for a long time, I've been an advocate of mandatory at least two years of public service. Mm. You know, we don't have the draft any longer. Uh, that may be a good thing. Uh, but we do have to at least expect, if not demand, that all of our young people serve this country uh, at least two years in ways that not only teach them About the country and teach them about how they can contribute to the country, uh, but also uh, put them in direct contact with people who they otherwise would not come in contact with, who are a different class or a different race or a different ethnicity, so that they, in their formative years, can actually learn at its best civic education. They understand America. I I think also it's very important in the classroom that we teach the system we that we have teachers who are equipped to show the connections between political science and economics and law and and history and there's no such thing as a free market i mean a market is a product of political and and legal decisions uh, a market can only be assessed in terms of who has the power to make those decisions and mm-hmm. young people need to see that they need to understand that they're taught a kind of a, an ideology in too many classrooms too many high schools uh, that has nothing to do with reality i want them to understand reality so to me civic education is both hands on two years of direct public service and it's also a curriculum built into high school and even uh, elementary school, where they're, they're seeing reality uh, and debating values, debating
1: ideals. I do want to know regarding hope, is there hope for lasting regulation, you know, say to rein in the wealthy interests, uh, to rein in these powerful people who use race and misogyny as tools to, you know, stay in their positions in, I guess, a, a way that cannot be circumvented by a subsequent generation?
2: Uh, No. Mm. Uh, No. I mean, every time we've done it, it's been temporary. Uh, That's why this is a continuous fight. There is no stopping. There's no solution to this that is going to be permanent. You know, in the first really 16 years of the 20th century, uh, the period dominated by Teddy Roosevelt, in fact, we called it the progressive era. And there are many very important reforms in terms of corporate power and inequality and progressive income tax and regulations, food and drug. And then what happened was eventually the powers overwhelmed them. Uh, The rich became powerful enough to make a lot of that progressive movement subdued. Uh, And then you came Franklin D. Roosevelt, uh, the fifth cousin of Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, And you had, again, through the Depression era, and the Second World War, another surge of reform. Some of that stuck. Uh, Much of it has been overwhelmed by the political power of the next wave of affluent. Uh, So there's no end to it. And in terms of racism, uh, we know there's no end to it. We've got to continue to fight it. There's no solution. You've got to continue to fight. Now, I say this, And I want you to understand, I'm sure you understand, Jamil, but I I want listeners to understand, uh, I don't say this out of cynicism. I say this out of hope. I believe that a good society is a society that understands that these battles never end, that they have to continue to be fought. A good society has got to continuously train young people to fight these fights. Uh, These are the front lines in the maintenance of democracy.
1: Speaking of someone who was on the front lines, tell the listeners who Michael Schwerner was and who he was to you.
2: Well, it's hard for me to talk about this because I almost always get emotional. I mean, everybody has their own story about why they do what they do. And my personal story involves uh, Michael Schwerner because uh, when I was a kid, I was very short. I still am very short, but a very short kid gets picked on. And I was bullied. And uh, my defense against this, the bullies uh, was to find older boys who would protect me. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mickey Schwerner, when I was a kid, was one of the older boys who at a certain point in my life uh, did help me. And then in the summer of 1964, Uh, I learned later, uh, Michael Schwerner had been in Mississippi registering black people to vote, along with two other civil rights workers, uh, when he was brutally murdered by the Ku Klux Klan, including the sheriff of Neshoba County, as were the other two. And when I heard that my protector had been bullied beyond bullying that he had been tortured and killed by the real bullies of america i think my life changed i think i started to see that power was a central animating force in a society in ways that i didn't understand until then and that stopping the bullies whether they're economic bullies or financial bullies or or they're political bullies or they're Donald Trump bullies or they're stopping the bullies mm-hmm. is what we must do if we're going to have a good society. Yeah.
1: Robert Reich, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today for Vox Conversations. It's uh it's been good to hash out these issues with you. Thank you, man. Well, Jamil, it's great to talk to you, and you
2: stay well, and you stay safe, and hope we talk again soon.
1: Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of Audio at Vox. How
2: is Sin City, by the way? I... I, I, (laughs) I mean, it's 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 so it's getting so weird, weirder than the rest of the country.
1: I I assure you, I thought Sin City was closer to where you are in Berkeley. (laughs) (laughs) That's Sodom and Gomorrah. That's different. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement. We want to hear that, too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of and what we can improve. If you have ideas for future guests or topics, email us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your family, your friends, your enemies, whomever. And be sure to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Then join us again on Monday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.